All right. Well, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of John. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 31 through 37. I will read those out loud. Please listen carefully as I read God's Word. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, quote, not a bone of him shall be broken, unquote, and again, another scripture says, quote, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Let's pray together. Father, we are here in uh, unexpected circumstances. We are thankful that your word is true and that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. And so we ask, Lord, that you would teach us and embolden our faith in this uh, troubling time. And Lord, for anybody who might have stumbled onto this broadcast uh, that we didn't know was coming, would you convince them of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are. It's a, uh, it's a tough time. Uh, obviously, we are broadcasting here from my living room, and we haven't seen each other for a while and we don't know exactly when we're going to get to see each other again uh, because of the coronavirus and it's a time of tension it's a time of uncertainty uh, i don't know anybody at this point directly who has been uh, infected or affected by this um, I, and i really haven't heard much indirectly i've just heard the broader reports but we know it will probably come closer to home and what is a growing concern for most of us in America and indeed around the world right now is what is the economic impact of this? Uh, lots of people are not working for weeks on end and we don't know when that's gonna to come to an end and the government passed their stimulus uh, bill and that may have an impact, but there's, there's some uncertainty for sure. And when the economy crashes, uh, that impacts all of us, even those of us who don't get the virus. Now, I'm kind of an optimistic person. My children will tell you I'm an optimistic person. I see some signs of hope here. Uh, I think there's some medication that is uh, potentially going to do uh, a lot to, to control the virus. And if we can get back to work in a, in a quick manner, I think maybe uh, the economics will not be as bad as it could be. But just for a moment, let's consider the worst case scenario, which I hope and pray is not going to come to pass, and I don't think it will. 
I'm not a prophet. We'll see. But let's just assume for a minute the worst case scenario. The, the doomsday prophets will tell us that million, two million, three million people could die of this disease and that the, 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 uh, the layoffs, the economic impact could be such that, you know, half of the nation is unemployed. And, and just for a moment, let's consider that being true. Think about how the world would respond to that. Uh, there, are, there are people who would say, and if you trace history back, this is documented. That's what, that's what the president means when he says the cure would be worse than the problem. People would come undone. Anarchy, crime, and then the suicide rate would skyrocket because of all the, uh, the despair in that moment. And here's the question for us as Christians what is it that would keep us from responding that same way? What is it that would cause us to say, no, I still have hope. The world is crashing down around me, but I still have hope. Well, the answer to that, of course, is we are convinced that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. We're convinced that he is the Son of God that he died and that he rose again, and that right now he's alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all of this, what we can't think is a mess. He is the king of kings and the king of this world. That gives us hope. So the next question comes in this form. Why? Why do we believe that? Why are we so sure that this is true. Well, the, the author of this book that we've been going through, the Apostle John, also was concerned to address the question of how do we know? How can we be so certain? He was writing to a group of people who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, who did not believe that Jesus died, did not believe that Jesus rose again. Uh, throughout the uh, first century, in fact, within just a generation of Jesus's death and resurrection, all kinds of lies and distortions uh, started spreading and they, they began to uh, downplay certain aspects of Jesus's life and, and really tried to undo it. And John wrote not only this gospel of John that we've been studying, he wrote three letters that we know as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John especially, he is dealing with the skepticism and unbelief and the distortions of the truth as they have uh, as they were uh, being taught. So I want to flip over to 1 John for a few moments and look at a couple of the things that he said there uh, to the early church. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Right away after the death and resurrection of Jesus, false prophets went into the world and they began telling lies about Jesus. And so John is warning the church, test them. Don't listen to everybody. Don't believe everything you hear. Test them. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. In other words, you know if the Spirit of God is behind this spirit. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that says, yes, Jesus was a man as well as the Son of God, and he really is who he said he is, that spirit is the true spirit, the spirit of God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. In the last hundred years or so of church history, we've been consumed with this thought that there is an Antichrist coming who's going to take over the world and oppress the church. Maybe that's true, but here John is saying, even in the very first century, Antichrist is already here. The enemy of our souls, the devil, since day one has been seeking to distort and destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ and Antichrist against Christ. There are spirits against Christ constantly going all the way back to the first century when John wrote this. Then chapter 5, he says this, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, or Messiah, is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Skipping down a little bit further, verse 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, the constant reminder, you have to believe in Jesus. This is how we overcome. This is uh, how we know who the sons of God are, those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Then he says this. This is chapter 5, verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, that is a fascinating passage, and I will admit to you, until this study of the Gospel of John, I wasn't exactly sure what the Spirit and the blood were talking about. I mean, I had guesses, and, and lots of people have guesses, but some things have crystallized for me as we've walked through this study of the Gospel of John. Uh, John here says three testify about, about Jesus. And think about what a testimony is. Who, what a, when someone testifies, what does that mean? Well, you think of a courtroom. Someone is called to testify when someone is on trial and a witness is called to say, this is what I know. This is what I've seen. I saw it with my eyes. I heard it with my ears. I can give eyewitness testimony in favor of this or against this, that kind of thing. John here says there are three that testify that Jesus is who he said he was. The first one he says here is water. Now, in the passage that I read to you from John's Gospel in John 19, we remember, of course, that the soldier pierced the side of Jesus and out came what? Water and blood. And it's, it could be that the water here is that water from his side. I don't think so. I don't think so because he goes on just a, a little, another verse later, and he says, If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. So in that context of God himself testifying of his son and using the word water, I think what John is referring to here is Jesus' baptism. You remember that story? Uh, we don't know a lot about Jesus as a child, and suddenly he shows up on the scene, and he immediately is baptized by John the Baptist. You remember that story where uh, John is, uh, is told by God that the Messiah is coming, and then he says, that's him. And John looks, and there's Jesus, says, that's the Messiah. 
And Jesus comes out to John to be baptized. And John says, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, not me baptize you. And Jesus says, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. I am a Jew and I need to obey all the commands of God. And God is commanding all of Israel to be baptized by John. So I'm coming to you and you should baptize me. After Jesus came up out of the water, you have all three persons of the Trinity present. There's Jesus himself, who's the Son. The Spirit, it says, descended upon him as a dove, not a dove, but like a dove. His coming down was like a dove. But then thundering out of the heavens is the voice of his Father. And he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God himself, for all who are listening, says, this is my son. He's testifying, this one is my son. I think that's the water that John is talking about. That the water testifies, God actually is the one at the baptism who testifies, Jesus is the son of God. Then the second witness, he says, is blood. And this, I do think, is referring to the spear being plunged into the side of Jesus. So let's go back to John chapter 19, and let's pick up in uh, verse 31 where I started reading. So the Jews come, it's the day of preparation, we are told, and the, uh, the Jewish law, the law of Moses, required that when someone was hung on a tree uh, for execution, then their body was to be taken down and not hang there all night. Well, this is a problem because Rome had a different view. When they crucified someone, they put them on the cross. And as we've talked about in weeks past, sometimes the, the uh, length of time before the person died would be days. And they loved that. The Romans loved that. And not only did they allow them to hang there alive for days, but even after they were dead, they would let them hang on the cross for a long time. In fact, until the vultures would come and devour the flesh. And the reason is they wanted this to be a deterrent for all who would walk by. If you commit these great crimes, you could end up like these people whose flesh the birds are eating. Well, that was a problem for the Jews because their law required that Jesus be taken down and it's the Sabbath, and it's a special Sabbath because it's the Passover time. And so they went and asked, is it possible that we could have the body and take the body down? And Pilate allowed this. And we don't know exactly what his motives were, but he did allow it. So they take his body down. But before they take his body down, uh, the, the soldiers come by and they did what they often did, and that was break the legs. They had a, a, an iron mallet. And they would break the legs of those who were hanging on the cross. So again, we talked about this. Now, I won't go into all the detail. Uh, but as the, as the executed person was hanging on the cross, the pain was intense. The spikes through their hands, the spikes through their feet, very intense. And Jesus, remember, also had the crown of thorns that were this thick, so maybe this thick, and, and pushed into his head. But the worst part of being crucified was the way you died was through asphyxiation. 
Remember, there, uh, we, I think we talked about some weeks ago, they had a little footstool or a little spot for them to sit on, and that was not a, an act of mercy by the, uh, the Romans. That was actually to prolong the agony. They could rest for a minute, but then they couldn't get a breath. And so they would lift themselves up to breathe and then release. Well, when the soldiers wanted them to finally be, uh, be done, they would come through with the iron mallet and they would break their legs. And yes, that caused more pain. Yes, that was uh, awful. But what that did was then remove their ability to lift themselves up and catch that next breath. And so it would uh, quickly bring them to demise. So the soldiers come by to do that and they have their iron uh, mallet and they remember he was buried in between two, two other uh, criminals, even though he wasn't a criminal. And they came to each one of those and broke their legs. They came to Jesus and he was already dead. We saw that in last, uh, the last lesson. He said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. He was dead. So the soldiers didn't do that. What they did do, and we don't know exactly what their motive was, but they took a spear and thrust it into Jesus's side. We don't know. Was this just one more act of, uh, you know, degrading to him? Uh, or was it just verifying he was dead? We don't know for sure. But they plunged the spear into his side and deep enough that out came blood and water. And, and the doctors debate as to exactly what, you know, what the spear penetrated into to cause that to happen. But it came flowing down his side. And John makes a big deal of this. John says, He who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. John is emphatic at this point to say, I saw this with my own eyes. I saw them stick the spear in his side and out gush blood and water. Now why? Why is he so emphatic? Because by the time John writes this gospel and writes 1st and 2nd John, one of the distortions, one of the heresies that was floating around was a belief that Jesus was not actually human. They couldn't fathom the fact that God would actually become a man and die. And, and so they started teaching this lie that the Christ was not actually human. He only seemed to be human. It was called docetism from the Greek word dokeo, which means to think or to seem. He seemed like he was human, but he was not really human. Well, that destroys everything about what the Bible says Jesus is and was, our sacrifice, our substitute, standing in our place. He couldn't stand in our place if he wasn't a man. And so John here is saying, I saw it with my own eyes. He was all flesh. He was a man. They put a spear in him and out came blood and water. I think that's what he means in 1 John when it says the blood testifies that he's the son of God. In that instance, emphasizing his humanity. We know that God, that, that Jesus is God and man. All the way back to John chapter 1, he's the word, the word was God, and that word became flesh. 
And John here is emphasizing we have the testimony of his humanity. I saw it with my own eyes. So what's the third witness from 1 John? The Spirit. Now what does that mean? Well, it could mean uh, the Spirit just in general works in our hearts to reveal the truth of Jesus. The Spirit is convicting the world of unrighteousness and sin and all that, and the, the Spirit is out active uh, bringing people to faith in Jesus. But I think it's the Spirit's leading the prophets of old to prophesy of the coming of the Messiah. John here is going to quote two places in the Old Testament that predicted the coming of Jesus and his death. And we've seen that over and over again. If you recall back a few weeks ago, uh, the, the last several sermons from John, we have seen John increasingly quote the Old Testament to describe events happening to Jesus leading up to the cross and on the cross. And now we get two more here in our passage today. Verse 36 says, For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, and he lists two of them. Not a bone of him shall be broken, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Both quotes from the Old Testament, and, and the scripture tells us that the Spirit of God is the one who led the prophets along to write their words, to make these prophecies. So we have a couple of predictions here that predate the cross of Jesus Christ by hundreds and hundreds of years. So the first one is, not a bone of his will be broken. There are three possible scriptures that could be referring to. Two of them refer to the Passover lamb. And that makes a lot of sense that John would be referring back to that. Because remember, the setting for this whole thing, the setting for the crucifixion of Jesus, is the Passover, the Jewish Passover, where the Jews gathered every year to remember God delivering them from slavery to Egypt. And the, uh, the, the circumstances came about when uh, God, through Moses, told Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused. And God sent the ten plagues on Egypt. And that tenth one was when the angel of death swept through the camp and killed the firstborn uh, sons of everybody. But this, this angel of death passed over the houses of Israel because they killed a lamb and put the lamb's blood on their doorpost. And God said, if you do that in faith, if you will kill that lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, then the angel of death will pass over your household. So this lamb that was sacrificed every year in remembrance of that uh, salvation that God brought to, to Israel, the lamb that had to be sacrificed, they, it was forbidden that it would be uh, deformed in any way, and they were not allowed to break the bones of the lamb that was sacrificed. So twice we have in the Old Testament ref references to the, not a bone of the lamb shall be broken for this Passover gathering. Well, here we are. At Passover, Jesus, the true lamb, the ultimate lamb whose blood covers the, the doorpost of our heart so that the angel of death will pass over us, not a bone of his could be broken. Very fitting. The other one is from the Psalms, and there it's uh, David saying that God will protect his servant. And so and part of that protection is not a bone of his will be broken. So all of those point to Christ. We're not sure exactly which one John is referring to, but it all fits. But sure enough, as the soldiers came by to break the bones of those who were on the crosses with Jesus, Jesus is already dead. They don't break his bones to fulfill that. The Spirit had predicted this. The other one is a much more uh, interesting uh, or, or obscure passage from Zechariah. It says, 
they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, it would be worth your time to, to dig in and really see what's going on in Zechariah. We're not going to take the time here this morning or this afternoon or this evening or whenever you're watching this. Um, but I just want to highlight in Zechariah, God is, is predicting a time when he is both going to judge his people and the other nations. And he describes there, he, he actually says, you will look on me whom you have pierced, that his people will disobey him and they will look upon him and be sad, be sorrowful for the way they treated him. Well, John takes that prophecy and says that was about Jesus. Jesus is God who's revealed in Zechariah and these people now see him pierce as, the, as the, the spear goes through his side, and they're saddened. You know what's fascinating? We saw how the crowds went back from, went, went from um, you know, on like what we call Palm Sunday, when the, the crowds were saying, this is our king, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then just a little while later, they're crying out, crucify him. And you think, big flip-flop there. In Luke's gospel, we are told that the crowds of people, when they saw Jesus give up his spirit, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last breath. Roman soldiers were captivated by that. And one of them said, surely this is the Son of God. And the crowds of Jewish people, it said, left the cross beating their breasts mourning and weeping, regretting what they had done. Which, if you fast forward to the book of Acts, a little while later after the cross, Peter preaching to thousands of unbelieving Jews, and thousands of them repent right there on the spot and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. There, there was something going on among the people as they watched Jesus die. They looked on him whom they had pierced, and they mourned. They were sorrowful. This predicted hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. There is one more Old Testament passage that the Spirit of God inspired to lead us to the death of Jesus. And that is a passage that most Christians are very, very familiar with. It is Isaiah chapter 53. And there's a lot that would be worth going through here, and we're actually going to come back next week and spend a lot more time here. But there's one verse in particular that I want to draw your attention to that is so fitting for where we are right now. In this day, in, in March of 2020, as the virus is uh, a pandemic throughout the world, here's what Isaiah said about this coming one who would suffer on our behalf. He says, surely our griefs he, him, he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being what fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. This translation that I just read to you says, Surely our griefs he himself bore. But the original Hebrew says, He bore our sicknesses. 
He bore our diseases. When Matthew quotes this verse uh, about Jesus going around and healing all the sick, he quotes it there as, he took our diseases. So here we are in this day when there is a disease spreading throughout our world and people are rightly very, very concerned and taking great precaution. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost unthinkable to, 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 to be here to think, we, we're not supposed to leave our house for fear of contaminating someone or catching the virus and spreading it. I mean, that's, nothing like this has ever happened in my lifetime. I would guess nothing like this has ever happened in anybody's who, who's watching this lifetime. But you know what? This disease is going to be cured. It's, it's going to die, die away. It, it, it's not going to last forever. But there will be another one. And there will be another one. And there have been many, many before this. So it's not as though we find a cure for coronavirus and then we go about living our lives and no more problems. No, there'll be another one. As Christians, our hope hangs on the truth that as Jesus hanged on the cross, he was carrying our diseases. That does not mean that we won't catch a virus in this life. What it does mean is that is not the end. We're going to die of something, all of us, whether we live out our days and die of old age or we get hit by a car or we get a disease. All of us are going to die. But he took our sorrows. He took our diseases. He took our infirmities. And what that means is after we die, we join him where he is right now at the right hand of the Father and we will live forever. And he is someday going to come back here and transform this world we live in. And it will never again have the slightest hint of disease, of decay, of death, of any kind. No sorrow, no pain, no suffering, no disappointment. Not a single one. It'll be paradise. It'll be glory. It'll be beyond our wildest dreams. And it's true because Jesus is who he said he was. He died on the cross. He took our sin. He died really dead. And these three testify, the spirit, the water, the blood, they all scream, he is the son of God. And everyone who believes that will die and then come back to life and live forever pain-free, disease-free. And I want to I challenge anyone who's listening to this who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. The testimony is overwhelming. It's true. Believe it today, and you will have eternal life. And for all my brothers and sisters in the Frack family, it's true. And no matter what comes down the pike the next few weeks and months, it's true. We can get through this one way or the other. And on the ultimate other side of this, all disease is gone and we will live forever. Let's pray. Father, keep us faithful, keep us strong, keep our eyes fixed on the truth. Jesus died, he rose again. He's in charge of even the coronavirus, and we have hope because 
he took our sorrows. Lord Jesus, fill us with your spirit, bear testimony in our hearts, and may we be examples to the rest of the world of those who have hope. And would you give us opportunities to share that hope with those who are in despair right now? For I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.